Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Eyes on Earth. We're a podcast that focuses on our ever-changing planet and on the people at Eros and across the globe who use remote sensing to monitor the health of Earth. I'm your host for this episode, John Holt. Today, we're going to talk about fire. Satellites like Landsat can be incredibly valuable for mapping fire perimeters and for monitoring trends in burn severity or in post-fire recovery. Satellites can cover wide areas with a single pass, whereas helicopter, drone, or airplane fireline mapping can take hours. But civilian satellites with moderate resolution typically don't get imagery for the entire planet every day, and every day counts when large fires rage. But what if we combine data from multiple satellite and other remotely sensed data sources, sources that can be used without an investment of time and resources into data processing? That's where our guest today comes in. Andre Coleman is a senior research scientist for the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. He's worked in geospatial science for more than two decades and recently spearheaded the creation of a tool called Rapid Analytics for Disaster Response, or Radar Fire for short. Andre is joined today by collaborator Lee Miller, a remote sensing scientist who specializes in data fusion, as well as by fire analyst Rick Stratton of the U.S. Forest Service. The fire tool uses data from Landsat or Europe's Sentinel-2 satellites to quickly map large fires. It also leans on EcoStress, a NASA thermal sensor affixed to the International Space Station, which can help pinpoint hotspots. EcoStress data are available through the Land Processes Distributed Active Archive Center, or LPDAC, which is located at Eros. Andre, Lee, Rick, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us, John. Andre, first off, let's talk generally about how remote sensing is useful for fire response. What are the benefits and, and what are the limitations for firefighters on the ground? So, John, I think I think you hit on one of the main points earlier, and that is with overhead satellite remote sensing, uh, we're able to capture large swaths of land within seconds, though it does take some time to get that data back down. For radar fire, the sensors that, that we're focused on are generally considered to be in that high resolution, kind of focusing in on that 30 meter to around 60 meter spatial resolution. What we get with those sensors then is detailed information on the spot fires, the actual fire or heat perimeter, as well as scattered heat, understanding you know areas that have burned already or impacted, areas that may be impacted going forward. Okay, I want to ask Rick to weigh in here from the Forest Service perspective. Tell us a little bit about how these tools help the Forest Service help fire management activities and maybe what are some of the limitations from your perspective? I think one of the main things is satellites can help us detect where the fire is. That is one of the most important questions we're constantly asking. Where's the fire and how close is it to a value that we need to protect? The other benefit from satellites, there is not a human up there that is at risk. Often there are sensors on these satellites that can see through smoke or clouds or some of the other things that can be troublesome at times. That can be very beneficial. There are some limitations. You're limited to how often the satellite passes over the fire and you can still be obstructed by clouds. Sometimes, you know, when you really want something, there's a cloud over it just teasing you a little. So there are still limitations, but I have seen in my career over the last 10 or so years that we are beginning to more and more rely on those eyes really high up in the sky versus fixed wings and other mechanisms to detect where the fire perimeters are. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So we can see more of the landscape. We can see through clouds if we need to. There is no danger to human life, but it doesn't just show up and you might not get passes when you need them. There are some other issues, clouds and things that that might get in the way. Those are kind of the two sides of the coin. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And, And you can kind of think of it. We are open to all these sources to be able to for heat detections. And so if we have UASs that are available, if we get information from the field, they might have GPSs. We get information from other satellites and we combine it all together. Then hopefully we get enough passes every day as well as maybe a formal detailed look late at night from a um, fixed wing. Then we can kind of get a sense over where the fire is and where it's going to go. But often when they are really moving, it's difficult to get this information timely. So the more different resources we have to obtain it, the better off we'll be. Well, let's talk a little bit about one of those systems. Let's talk about radar fire. We'll turn back to uh, Andre and Lee here. Where did this idea come from? And at what point did you realize that this could be part of the fire response? Tell us about how this idea came about. Sure. So, so radar, rapid analytics for disaster response was formulated back in 2014 through Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology grant. And at that time, the goal was to be able to get damage assessment after a disaster event within 24 hours of the start of that event. And then every 24 hours thereafter, this was really intended to be an all hazards tool. You could use this for hurricanes, other wind events, flood events, wildfires, tsunamis, landslides, what have you. So really that idea was to focus on how can we use these satellite resources that we have available to us, pull that data down and deliver those data to those folks on the ground that need it. 2014 doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but in terms of satellite remote sensing, the landscape was different than it is today. You had people starting to think about moving microsatellites out there. So one of our solutions right, to be able to get to that 24-hour time limit was to really to make use of lots of different sensors. Every satellite has a different orbit trajectory to it, has a different revisit time, and every satellite has a little bit different property, too, in, in terms of what it can collect. And we really had to develop a whole set of algorithms that were different and tailored to each sensor. But the benefit out of that is that we could achieve, in the end, that time limit of being able to to deliver data within 24 hours. Just to interrupt here for a second and put a finer point on this, Andre, Landsat is every 8 to 16 days. The European Sentinel systems are every 5 to 10 days. And you have sort of everything in between. And you're building a tool to give you an answer that day. Yep, that's exactly right. With radar, excluding wildfire events, we responded to over 50 major uh, disaster events within the U.S. and around the world using this tool set. We'll continue to develop that out. Over the past year, we really put a lot of emphasis in the wildfire space and took a step back and said, well, what satellites and sensors are, are appropriate for imaging in the wildfire space? And it became really important to, as Rick said earlier, to look at those sensors that can see through the smoke, so to speak. Those were getting further out into the electromagnetic spectrum. That further limited the sensors that we could make use of. In addition to that, we really wanted to include synthetic aperture radar, which is challenging for for wildfire. So the work continues, but in the end, what we have is a cloud-based system that leverages known fires from the National Interagency Fire Center. We use those as a cue then to look for new satellite imagery that becomes available over those known fires. 
Once that imagery becomes available, we pull that data down, extract all the metadata out of it, do the analytics on that, and disseminate the data. The intent of the system is to be entirely automated and get that data out to those who need it. The operational prototype of that system was really functioning for the entire U.S. So if there was a fire in the U.S., the data was collected and processed. Maybe I want to turn to Lee on this one. What data sources are feeding into radar fire at this point? Any publicly available satellite system is on the table. The good and the bad on that would be that, again, different satellites have different ideal applications. Whether you're looking for something like a burn scar from synthetic aperture radar, which is great, I can't give you that with a thermal acquisition that tells me where the hot spots are, but it doesn't tell me where it was hot a week ago. So we're continually adding and testing different publicly available data sets, including from NASA, as well as European Space Agency, India Space Agency, anything we can kind of grab that gives us a shorter revisit time to a location. Say we have 50 active fires, the system would actually go and grab all relevant data over each fire location for that last day, process it, and update the information as available, all powered by cloud computing rather than an analyst behind an individual computer. Just to dig in a little bit on EcoStress, since it's a fairly new sensor, it was designed to help us understand stress to plants from a lack of moisture. What data gap did this sensor fill? The real gem of sorts related to EcoStress is because it's on the International Space Station right now, and part of its tasking is that anytime it's over the U.S., it's trying to turn on and collect data. EcoStress, in contrast to something like Landsat with a 8 to 16 day revisit time, EcoStress is sometimes giving us two possible acquisitions per day over the contiguous U.S. And given that data that's more than 24 hours old isn't really actionable anymore, that idea that it collected last night, maybe it collected again this morning, is a huge benefit. It appears as a radiance product, not a reflectance product, in about 12 hours. And so if we're fast in getting it and processing it, it can be in the hands of people who can actually use the results from last night, this morning. You have a charge to map the fire within 24 hours and then reassess every 24 hours. And here is the sensor that is collecting every 24 hours or maybe even twice. 12 hours. Or sorry, yes. every 12 hours, right? Yeah, approximately. Um, so Andre and Lee, did you ask NASA to build this for you specifically or just dumb luck or what? So EcoStress was one of these sensors that we previously didn't have any experience with. They had all the right kind of properties to it. It is an experimental sensor. By going through that inventory and evaluating all these sensors, that's really how we came to know this. So it ticked all the boxes. It did, yeah. Well, it's pretty exciting stuff. It's my understanding that you're working with the U.S. Forest Service with folks like Rick to improve radar fire and that you're hoping this will be used by teams on the ground. I'm not sure whether that has happened yet. Can you talk a little bit about that, about some of that work and maybe what the next steps would be? There's different applications for satellite imagery. We've been talking about the importance of knowing where the active fire perimeter is. But there's other benefits for imagery. I told Andre when I saw this image, like, you know, I like jumped out of my seat because it was pretty sweet. It was on Telegraph and it shows the fire and just a really brilliant image moving into an area that had had a previous fire that was challenging to the forest. 
and it was a very sizable field treatment just south of the globe. It shows that area as it's just entering it and the intensity and the movement into it lessening where firefighters were able to contain the fire in that area to help mitigate the threat to the community of globe. And you can use imagery like this to look at large-scale effects of fuels treatments, checking large fire growth. The more we look at this, we see that a smaller network of multiple fuels treatments or a larger fuels treatments in a network can really help mitigate the sizes of these large fires. But there's other things. Post-fire, we worked with this product to look at what does the imagery say about the severity of the fire itself. We also did some explorations on teasing out where retardant drops occurred. These kinds of information and getting it at a timely manner and then getting it to the incident management team and making actionable decisions based on where the fire is, is really critical to being able to keep folks safe and protect the things we care about and ultimately be successful in containment. And again, we're talking about the Telegraph fire there in Arizona. You're actually looking at it this year and you said, well, this is this is what we want. This is useful for us. Yeah, jaw dropped or something along those lines? Yeah, there's lots of different uses for this imagery. In that case, just the image itself was just very valuable as they had processed it and shared it. You could see where the heat was, you could see smoke, and you could also see where the fuel treatments were. I want to ask, to put a real fine point on this, how valuable are civilian data sources to efforts like this? Would it be possible or economically feasible to pull this off without sensors like Landsat or EcoStress? If you look at this year's fire season and last year's fire year, there are so many fires going on and extending out over time. We see more and more mega fires. You know, the idea of doing commercial acquisitions is going to rack up a lot of costs. It really becomes important to leverage these more open access types of satellites that are sponsored by NASA, NOAA, and the European Space Agency and others around the world. There may be a case to be made where we can bring in more commercial sensors for fast moving fires where we're really not able to get the coverage through other satellites. But having said that, one of the tools we actually developed this past year was a satellite forecasting tool. So you can put in the boundary of an active fire and understand which satellites are going to be coming over when and how much area they're going to cover on that fire. Part of the idea with that was to be able to help an incident commander who may be ordering up airborne imagery and say, well, if I'm not going to be able to get appropriate satellite coverage over my fire, let's look to other sources. So it's a go here, not there, order this. All of that information helps you to make those decisions. That's correct. One of the big limitations I think that we still have with satellite-based imaging is the latency between image collect, the downlinking, and doing all that initial processing on the imagery before we can get our hands on it. Part of that is just the communication methods and where downlink stations exist. We're now moving into an era where with some of the more modern communication satellites out there, the data that's collected by an Earth observation satellite then can be linked to a communication satellite and relayed from satellite to satellite to a downlink station. So you don't have to wait for these windows where that satellite is passing over the visible area of a downlink station. We're moving into a space now where we're waiting four to six to seven to eight hours for the data into a space where this is going to be available within 45 minutes. That's really going to change how we can use these satellites for disaster response. You're not just talking about more satellites and more data, but getting the data from those satellites faster. That's right. Yep. I'd like to ask each of you now if you have any closing thoughts. 
because of us trying to surmount this latency problem and because of interactions like with Rick Stratton at the Forest Service, we're working with a lower quality but quicker access product. Things like that EcoStress water use efficiency aren't available for three to four days, and that's much too long. But we're able to access these calibrated but pretty raw data sets, and that's what we're working with. That's what it takes to hit these 12-hour, 24-hour latency issues. And that's maybe not apparent to someone who's much later looking at the fire from last year, but that's what's required if you're going to put data in the hands of incident commanders. That's what makes this application quite unique from a more forest inventory type assessment that would rely on higher quality, higher calibrated data sets. Different application, different user base, and different approaches. Anything to add there from Andre or Rick? The National Interagency Fire Center has had a long-standing airborne imaging program, and the goal there is to fly as many fires as you can overnight and be able to do that processing and make those data available for the morning briefings. With more fires and bigger fires, these are taking more time to do these collections. The timing is right to introduce other platforms that can assist in those efforts. We've seen probably over the last couple of years where requests for those airborne imaging assets are made, and they're not always able to be fulfilled for a variety of reasons. But this airborne imaging can be constrained just given the number of fires that are happening out there. So the idea that we can bring other sensors in to help aid, particularly where you have wild fires that are maybe less priority. They're not impacting homes and communities or critical infrastructure, fires that may not get as much attention. And so the folks working those fires have to rely on more traditional methods. With a system like radar fire, it's really agnostic to the type level of the fire. If that fire is out there and it exists, it's going to get imaged. It maybe equalizes the field a little bit in that regard. We do also have resources out there at the state level. California has a lot of airborne resources for imaging. Colorado also has a program where they do a lot of their airborne imaging. So again, it's like you have these programs out there, but it's really about getting better, more timely information to those folks on the ground. We've been talking with scientist Andre Coleman and his collaborators about a system called Rapid Analytics for Disaster Response and how it can help firefighters in the future. Andre, Rick, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having us, John. And thank you to the listeners for joining us as well. You can find all our shows on our website at usgs.gov slash eros. That's usgs.gov forward slash E-R-O-S. You can also follow Eros on Facebook and Twitter to find the latest episodes, or you can find our shows on Apple or Google Podcasts. This podcast, this podcast, this podcast is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey, Department of Interior.